Right, how about now? Is that better? All right, good. Start again. Right, well done, everybody, for surviving so far in the heat. It is roasting hot. Joel, why have you got a jumper and a pair of jeans on? You're crazy. You're crazy. It's raining. <laughs> Whoever's got a jumper and trousers on, you are crazy. But yeah, well done. A special well done to yourselves. Um, well, morning, everybody. It's nice to be back with everyone. It feels like it has been a while, and it has been a while, but uh, it is great to return, and as the summer sadly comes to an end, and as the autumn eventually rolls in, uh, things are kick-starting back up again, and we're a, we're a hive of activity once again. Uh, and part of that is to dive afresh into our series through John's Gospel. I know it's a slow and steady race, but just like the tortoise in that fable, it's those who are slow and steady that win. Uh, and we are gathering a gold mine of God's wonderful truth and revelation that is affecting our lives as we journey with John the Apostle in his Gospel. So we'll be looking at John's Gospel and we're drawing to an end of chapter three. So if you've got your Bibles with you, feel free to go there. If not, it will be on the screen in a moment. But as a reminder, what we've been doing as we've been going through John's gospel is we've been looking at the various aspects of Jesus's identity. And as we've been looking at Jesus's identity, we've been seeing who we are in Jesus and then how that affects our lives, how we're to live in the light of who Jesus Christ is. If we're in him, as we claim to be, then we should be different. Now, the reading we're going to be reading is up there. George, it's a long reading, so to save you guys listening to my voice more than you need to, I'll just ask George if you could read Thanks. for me. Okay, grab a mic. There is Farsi up there, but I'm aware I've probably translated it wrong, but if it makes sense, great. taking these new reading glasses for a test drive, but I think I'm going to read up there, that's okay. That's fine. <laughs> After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside, where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing at Anon, near Salem, because there was plenty of water, and people were coming and being baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. To this John replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah but I am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, 
but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Great. Thanks, George. So, yes, a bit longer than usual, but I thought this is one scene that I would just love to tackle in one go, and then we're going to progress with Jesus' journey uh, in his earthly ministry. So just three things that I want us to unpack together from this scenario. Firstly, the key, the pinnacle, really, of what John the Baptist, we just read, said, how Jesus has to increase and we have to decrease. Secondly, that Jesus is above all things and what that means. And then thirdly, how we practically in our day-to-day lives can go on prizing Jesus more and more in our lives and what that looks like. So firstly then, let's start by seeing how Jesus must increase and we have to decrease. Just again, let me just read verses 22 to 24. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them, that's his disciples, and baptized. Now, John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because there was plenty of water and the people were constantly to be baptized. This was before John was put in prison. So, for all those who may not recall, we've moved on now from John's, uh, Jesus rather, his conversation with Nicodemus. There was a guy called Nicodemus who was a Pharisee, which was a religious sect in Juda- Judaism in that time. He came to Jesus under cover of night because he didn't want to be seen by his colleagues to speak and engage with him and find out more. And Jesus shared basically the good news about his coming with him. And now after that, he's retreated into the countryside for something of a break. And yet still people go to him. He's having his disciples baptizing these new followers that are going to him, perhaps teaching and training his disciples what they're to do once the church is born and people are added to the church. Because Jesus wasn't baptizing himself. His disciples were baptizing. Jesus was teaching and training them what to do in his name. But then as we read, John the Baptist was also continuing to baptize people nearby as well, baptizing them for the repentance of their sins and turning away from themselves to God. And then the next few verses, 25 to 26. Feel free to throw it up, guys, on the PA if you can, but don't worry if you can't. An argument, here we go, an argument now, while all this is happening, developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, or teacher, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, well... He's baptizing, and everyone is going to him. So, we see that a bit of a discussion happens among these people. A few of John's disciples 
and this bloke to do with ceremonial washing, to do with what's called purification rites in those days, how you made yourself clean before God, practically, physically speaking, how to wash your hands, how to wash your feet, what type of water to use, in which way to place it in certain types of jugs. And part of that was being baptised. Now, in those days, if you were an ethnic Jew, you weren't baptised. That was something that happened to you if you were what's called a Gentile, someone who's not a Jew. If you wanted to become a Jew and be part of Israel and you weren't ethnically born into that community and nation, you could be baptized and then you'd be recognized as being somewhat part of that religion, that nation. You had something of the privileges and access to God to worship him in some way, shape or form. So the fact that John and Jesus' disciples are baptizing Jews is already in itself creating a little bit of a stir. The Pharisees are thinking, that's really odd. Why are you doing that? Are you saying that us Jews, we're not already part of God's family? Because you're baptizing us again. We don't need that. We've got our fathers Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the patriarchs. We, We were born and bred in this country. Why are you baptizing us again? But there's a point, there's a reason. Baptism goes deeper than just the body. Everybody needs to be baptised in Jesus, to be recognised by him. But that's not the point. That is not the point of what's happening. We don't really know what they were discussing, apart from the fact it says it was to do with washing. But what it really comes down to is jealousy. Is a little bit of jealousy. A lot of issues mostly come down to sin in our lives in some way, shape or form. And it was no different with John's disciples. There was a bit of jealousy that was going on. Now, we've all experienced the trappings of jealousy if we're being brutally honest with ourselves. There is no man or woman who hasn't experienced some form of envy. I met up with a friend the other week back in my hometown of Swansea. uh, And I knew he was my friend because he's the only person who I would stay up almost past midnight with just talking ultimately I had to say at quarter to 12 I'm going home I've got kids I've got to wake up the next morning Uh, so we were chatting away though from like whenever I arrived late afternoon until late in the evening part of that conversation was reminiscing nostalgically back to when we were teenagers growing up together and we had this friendship group and it was such a great it was five years of you know those kind of classic friendship groups if you never had this growing up you kind of look at and think that would be great to be part of I had that amazing privilege to be part of that with five of these guys and a handful of girls as well who were just part of this big friendship group in the local church we were all part of but as part of being friends we were talking about how jealous we were of different guys in our friendship groups who they fancied and the fact that they were fancying girls that we were interested in but they weren't interested in us and you know I even remember sorry Kerry I dated one of the girls in our friendship group went to the cinema along came Polly Jennifer Aniston don't know what the film is about making out at the back towards the end but friend (laughs) friend (laughs) friend (laughs) friend called Reg we called him Reg Reginald um (laughs) he was jealous we had a sleepover not long after that and 
It's a little bit awkward, a little bit uncomfortable. He ended up marrying her, so they got married, so it's all okay now. We don't speak much anymore because it's a bit awkward, but <laughs> no, we do. He's moved away though. But jealousy, and that's, that's, you know, that's a little bit of a childish thing, but it's a real thing at the time. And jealousy is a real thing in each and every one of our lives. You know, John, actually, what you contributed about being on equal footing and how we're all of the same value. When we're jealous, when we allow jealousy to permeate us, that is in some way us thinking that someone else or what they have or the situation they're in is of greater value. It's, it's better than us or where we're at or really, which I'll come unto, where God's placed us. It's us almost saying, I don't agree with what you, God, have given me or where you have placed me. I want what they have and I want to be in the circumstance that they're at. And again, it could be anything neighbor's new car, someone's house extension. If you've got kids, the fact that they've got certain achievements, academic or otherwise, that maybe your child has. Or I was speaking to a colleague this this week and she was saying how people her age are able to retire at the age that she would love to, but she needs to go on. All these different things that can easily cause something of jealousy. A new married couple whose wedding you've been invited to and, you know, you're on that single table, single table, which people definitely shouldn't do. Uh, and it's awkward. And you're thinking, I want what they've got. Whatever it is, everyone's experienced that. And John's disciples were no different. Just because we read about something in the Bible does not mean these humans who are recorded in this book are any different from us. We're all made from the same human nature. It's just that Jesus makes the difference. And the differences with John's disciples here was that they were actually jealous of Jesus. I don't think anyone has really been jealous of Jesus. I don't think that would ever happen. But these guys, on behalf of John the Baptist, were envious of Jesus and what he was doing. He was gathering disciples who were baptizing people, and he was teaching them like John the Baptist has been, had been doing for many years. Now suddenly, this guy comes on the scene, Jesus' cousin actually, and all attention is now on him. All attention and focus is on Jesus and not their teacher, John. Everyone was going to him. And what's John the Baptist's response to this? Not jealousy, which would have been so easy for him, I bet but humility, not jealousy, but humility. Verses 27 to 28 say this. This is John's response. To this, John replied, a man can receive only what is given him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Christ, but I'm sent ahead of him. Yes, sent ahead of him. You see, John the Baptist knew his position. He knew his calling. He knew who he was and he knew what he had been called to do. John was the last of the Old Testament prophets. You know, we've got what's called the Old Testament and we've got what's called the New Testament. In the Old Testament, the Lord spoke specifically, particularly through prophets who he would raise up and who would declare his words to the people of Israel. To the people of Israel. 
and to others as well. And John the Baptist comes on the scene and he's the final Old Testament prophet before Jesus comes along. It was actually prophesied about John the Baptist several hundred years ago in one of the very last books of the Bible that he would come on the scene and he would make a way for Jesus. He'd be a voice for Jesus. And now, Jesus' name wasn't dropped in those Old Testament books. He'd, be, he'd make the way for what's called the Saviour. He'd be the voice of the Messiah, the one that all of Israel were hoping was going to come in militant power to crush the Romans, to take occupation of their land, and to rule with an iron fist. We've read the story, most of us. We know what happens, and that is not how Jesus came into the world So there's a bit of confusion, rightly even, on John the Baptist's part. But he was foretold that he would come and make a way. He would be the forerunner to Jesus. He wasn't Jesus. People thought he was Jesus. People even said, are you the Christ? And John just said, you know that I've said I'm not Jesus. I'm not the saviour. I've come ahead of him. He was somewhat similar. He was preaching the good news. He was preaching about the kingdom coming, about people being able to come to God and be saved from their sins. He was baptizing, but he wasn't Jesus. Now, Jesus comes on the scene, and John points to him. John recognizes him, and he points to him. John symbolized the close of the, what's called the old covenant, the old ways that God dealt with his people. We're in the new covenant. God deals with us in a new way through Jesus. Jesus is that new way. So John's a symbol of what's come before, and he is the introducer of what's to come next. That's Jesus. Okay? So he's in that transition time. Jesus even described John, this is amazing, as the greatest person who had ever lived aside for himself. Jesus describes John as the greatest man born of a woman. Now, for Jews, they'd be like, that is Moses. Moses is the best. Moses is the greatest. John says, no, actually, John the Baptist. Little John, out in the wilderness, in obscurity, wearing a poor man's clothes, if you remember eating locusts and honey, thought of as a crazy kook, rejected by most people, like Jesus. He's the greatest man who has ever, ever lived. And as we read in the New Testament, we actually realize, no, John was pointing to the greatest person who had ever lived, Jesus. But for Jesus, John was the greatest human being. That wasn't the Messiah. That wasn't both God and man. But John, even if he somewhat knew that, he acknowledged that his time was coming to an end and he had to make space for the one who was greater than him. Now, John's humility here is helped because he understands that nothing he's experienced or received is due to himself. John said in verse 27, to this John replied, a man or woman can receive only what's given him from heaven. God had graciously given to John everything out of his free, gracious sovereignty. God had providentially orchestrated all things in John's life and nothing was as a result of his own doing separate to God and John knew that John was prophesied that that is what would happen to him how can that if we think about that for ourselves not humble us that God has a plan 
and a purpose and a destiny for how everything in our life is woven and orchestrated together. The very air we breathe, that air I'm breathing, our brain signals that we can't even see or feel, the beats of our hearts, the ability to learn skills, to work in a job in order to earn money, to provide food, to help us to live. All these things are gifts of God's power, his control, his rule, and his reign in our life. The fact that he governs our entire being and every circumstance and every situation. Trust me when I say that acknowledging God's sovereignty is a remedy for jealousy. Acknowledging God's sovereignty, that just means his control, by the way, his rule and his reign, the fact that he is God and therefore he knows and has orchestrated all things. Acknowledging that is a remedy for jealousy. Why is it a remedy for jealousy? We trust that he has planned our lives with purpose. God planned John the Baptist's life, which was hard, but he did it because he knew the glory John would enjoy with him. He had a plan for his life. He was on a trajectory that would give Jesus the increase, even if it meant the decrease for John the Baptist. We don't have to want what others have because we have what God wants us to have and what could be better than that what could be better than having and enjoying what god has given to us and where he's put us now john takes his response further here verse 29 the bride belongs to the bridegroom the friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice that joy is mine and it is now complete Have you ever taken notice of a best man if you've ever been to a wedding? Or have you ever actually taken time, if you're the groom, to look at your best man? At my wedding, my best man, he was called Devan. He was South African, a bit of an odd name, but he's called Devan. He's a South African guy, and he was only in one year of Bible college with me. That's That's where we met. But we really connected. Small guy, And great hips, by the way. (laughs) He could dance, man. He could really dance to this day. Dance well. But great guy, friendly, got on with him like a house on fire. He left after first year, but we became such good friends that we stayed connected. And he's in Bristol, married with kids now and everything. Um, but, But he was my best man. And it was to him that I had given the responsibility of different things. We had given the responsibility He was to look after my stag, which he did a great job. I mean, it was the classic um, paintballing, come back to someone's house, and we watched some sport. I think we played some games and things like that. Like, pretty tame, if there's any people who did crazy things. I wasn't into the crazy, like, naked around a lamppost type of thing. That's not my style. There's some in this church whose style that is. It's not my style. Um, But he was a good guy. He did a good job. But he was responsible for making sure he had our wedding rings. He was responsible for giving all those announcements you get at a wedding. So, you know, ladies and gentlemen, it's now time for the photos. Can the family of the groom, can the family of the bride, or now it's time to cut the cake, or now it's time for speeches. And then he gave his speech. He made sure our wedding reception all went okay. So actually, your best man has a lot of responsibilities. And if you're not kind of that way inclined, which Devan actually wasn't, it can be a little bit intimidating 
because you know, your friend, the groom, as well as his bride, is looking at you and making sure you're kind of doing a good job and making sure everything happens and falls into place. Hard work, definitely, for Devan, my friend, but it was a joy to him, ultimately. He had the privilege of being asked to be my best man. The, respon- the joyful responsibility of making sure it all went well and then ultimately overseeing other people were involved, but for the sake of this and what John the Baptist is saying, over- making sure that my bride came to me down that aisle symbolically where he would be next to me, there to enjoy that connection that we were having. John was like Jesus's best man. That's why John the Baptist uses this image, this picture of a wedding and the bridegroom, who we would just call the groom, uh, and his best friend, he calls him here, which is the best man. He had been preparing for the special day when Jesus would come on the scene, and when he did, John laid down his responsibilities, stood aside, and welcomed him with joy and delight. The best man was pointing to the groom, saying to the bride, that's us, by the way, God's church, Here is your amazing husband. He's come. Go to him and enjoy him. I've done my work as the best man. It's over. And then John utters these these famous words. Verse 30. He must become greater. I must become less. Or he must increase. And I must decrease in a different translation. Reflect then on these two questions. Here's my challenge This week, reflect on two questions if you get a moment in the busyness of your lives. Is Jesus increasing in my life more and more? So like John, can you say, is my joy in Jesus only growing the more I get to know him? And then secondly, more of this is the challenge one really. What might be getting in the way of me making more of the Lord in my life? What could be getting in the way of me having joy in Jesus more and more? Misplaced priorities, distraction from worldly things, ventures, laziness, if we're being honest, undealt with sin, if we're being even more honest, fear of what other people might think, family, friends. Pray this week and maybe just in a quiet moment, just think about that. Jesus must increase, we must decrease. Jesus must become greater, we must become less. Now, this next statement, as we go on, is really just emphasizing the first one. Jesus is above all things. But I'll keep it short because it's somewhat repeating it. But it does show that John is emphatic about what he's already just said, that Jesus has to take the supremacy in everybody's life. He must be superior above all things. Verses 31 to 33. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is, from, is above all. He testifies to what he has heard, but no one accepts his testimony. The man who has accepted it has certified that God is truthful here the apostle john is writing in his writing is reminding us through john the baptist's words what he's already expressed previously what we've looked at in previous chapters that jesus is from heaven 
newsflash reminder for all, all of us. Jesus is from heaven. Jesus is God. Other religions will reject that. We believe Jesus, this 33-year-old Jew from Israel 2,000 plus years ago, is God in human flesh and bone and marrow come to be with us. He existed in the presence of God as God the Son from all eternity. Jesus has always existed before Mary gave birth to him. He was with the Father and with the Spirit before all time. And then in his incarnation, when he put on flesh, when he put on carne, flesh, meat, he became human and now he's revealing everything he's seen and heard from the Father to the people, to the world, to humanity, starting with the Jews, which he did, and we read about that, and has now gone to us, Gentiles, non-Jews, everybody, everyone on an equal footing, slave-free, man, woman, black, white, rich, poor, married, single, has a job, doesn't have a job, struggling with life, enjoying life, home, has a home, doesn't have a home, everyone has an opportunity to hear and see everything that God is doing for our souls and for this world. Uh, so question is in light of that did you know that Jesus is infinitely greater than everything have you ever thought about how Jesus is of the greatest value and worth ever over and above everyone and everything in your life there's so many reasons why this is true but here John the Baptist's last few last few sentences I think are some really helpful reasons that he mentions okay so the last few verses of our passage today 34, 33, right? He's continuing here. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God gives the spirit without limit. The father loves the son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the son will not see life for God's wrath remains on him. Why is Jesus above all things and worthy of first place in our lives? Firstly, because he speaks the very words of of God himself. 34, for the one whom God has sent, that's Jesus speaks the words of God. We live in a world today where there's so much communication globally, technologically, and sadly, vitriolic, even untrue, you know, that fake news, that popular phrase at the moment. It's hard to know what's true. Depends on the source, depends who's saying it, depends on what it is. But one thing you can guarantee is God, who is the truth, has given us true words without error, without fault, no lies, no deceit. He's not malicious. He's not deceiving us. God has given us the very words of himself that's recorded in what we call a Bible. And we can go to him through this word and we can know for certain that he is telling us the truth about life, the world, existence and reality and we can trust him. He's given us life. His word, in his word, is life. Jesus is the word. We find Jesus in the scriptures that are the word, and we can have life in him. We can have real, peaceful, joy-filled life. All we need to do is turn to his word, the Bible, and build our lives on it. Jesus said, build my lives on my teachings. Here's the teachings that we go to, and we come to learn. Doesn't that make him? something of worth 
over other things. Secondly, God gives the spirit without limit or without measure. I saw a trailer. It's going to be a bit uh, dodgy for some people. Sorry, I'm just, this is just who I am. Um, saw a trailer for the new Exorcist film that's coming out. Um, obviously, purely demonic. Don't want anything to do with that. Uh, but we live in a world that is rife with evil spirits. As Christians, we believe there's a supernatural spiritual realm. And yes, they have influence through the arts and creative things and perhaps what we would say are silly films, but demonic nonetheless. But there's evil in policies, in systems, in different organizations, as well as people's lives, how we build our lives. There's those evil forces Paul talks about in the New Testament Our fight isn't against flesh and blood, but it's against principalities, powers, spirits of of the air, so spirits of the world. We're in a fight. There's evil spirits around. God has given us his holy spirit, his good spirit, his spirit who doesn't bring death. The demonic brings death. It brings destruction if we let it into our lives. But the holy spirit gives life. He gives eternal life to those who have faith in Jesus alone because of God's grace alone, then we receive the Holy Spirit alone and we can live a true life in him. Destructive addictions, oppressive policies, wicked powers have nothing to do with the Holy Spirit when we bring him into our lives by believing on Jesus. And then lastly, 35 and 36, the father loves the son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Jesus' words, Jesus' spirit, they give eternal life to those of us who believe and obey. As children of God, our inheritance, right, your inheritance as a child of God, is a genuine, whole, true, real, authentic, glorious, perfect all-satisfying and joyfully overflowing life, even though it doesn't feel like it all the time. That is the reality we get to pursue daily. We get to persevere through the dredge of normal life if we come to Jesus through his word, by his spirit, joyful, eternal life with him. There was a John the Baptist's persuasions, reasons why we should put Jesus first in our life, while, why he should be on the increase and make less of ourselves. Very end, and I'll close with this, everyone. How can we go on then prizing Jesus above all? I think it would be wrong of me if I ignored Jesus, John's serious words here at the end, if that's all right, because we've got to stay true to what the Bible says. And actually, John ends with some serious words. His final sentence, 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life. For God's wrath, that means his anger, which is good. God is angry against sin and corruption and that which is wicked and evil remains on people who don't believe in Jesus. Jim mentioned that with with Muhammad, giving the invite to know Jesus and have your sins forgiven. And John ends with that. For any unbelievers with us today, the question isn't how can I go on prizing Jesus? The question for you is will I prize Jesus? Above all, will I prize Jesus? Your life depends on it. 
Life depends on it. Turn away from your disobedience to him, which leads to just wrath and holy anger that I mentioned, and obey Jesus by believing on him as your saviour, <laughs> the one who wants to save you, the one who wants you to be with him. Put away false words, have nothing to do with demonic spirits, and stop living a dead existence. Without Jesus, those people in the world, or any of you today, live a meaningless, pointless, purposeless life. In Jesus is the only true life you can experience. Instead, then come to him as your Lord and your God, and take for yourself his true word, his Holy Spirit, to enjoy his eternal life. Trust me, it's not in heaven, boring, playing on harps and clouds and all that nonsense rubbish. It's true, wholesome, satisfying, enjoyable, happy life in God. Have him as the source of all your joy, your happiness, your delight, meaning and purpose. And then lastly, for us believers, let's just copy John's example, because that'll go a long way. Just decrease. I just think to myself, now what could be the application here? And I was thinking, ah, it's good, this stuff. This, this is good application. But it just seem, it always, I always seem to say, we should read our Bibles. And we, we've got to pray, and we should. Don't get me wrong. But you know what? I'm going to just say what John said. John said, obey Jesus. Obey Jesus. So here we go. The, the application, the, the thing to go away and do, as it were. Yeah, read your Bible. Enjoy doing so. Learn from him. Go to his feet, which is the word, and learn. But let's do what he says. It's like, do it. Do it. I'm, I'm do it. Like, actually do it. <laughs> be, with wisdom, we might not be thinking, I'm going to sell my house now and live on the street or something like that. Know what God's calling you to. But the challenge, I think, here is to make more of Jesus and to make less of ourselves. Not think less of yourself, but think of yourself less and put him first. I venture John the Baptist's example. Just do it. Just obey him. What you read in his Bible... And what you sense his spirit with the wisdom of other believers that you trust, do it. I'm just going to leave it like that. Do it. Do it. All right? Better finish. Got anything else to say?